Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 8.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. personally thank the universe for giving me a substantial number of things to preach from this week. It has been rather rich in, well, let's be honest, drama. And I could have easily written three different sermons based upon the things that were going on. And yet, I can't do that. You have things to do today. And I just decided through the leading of the Holy Spirit and the prodding of the scriptures to focus on the one that is going on very soon here in Crozet and in Charlottesville. And so what led me through all of this is the promise of the scripture that we read, that even as Jesus was preparing to depart from the apostles 40 days after his resurrection on Easter morning, that he was telling them to stay focused, right? And they're asking questions that we would all ask. So when are you coming back? How long do I have? And Jesus is saying, that's not what's important. It's not important when I'm coming back, just that I am coming back. And I'm not going to leave you orphaned, as he tells us, but instead, I will send the Holy Spirit to give you power, to give you power and to help you do a very important job to witness for me. And so they're, they're starting to refocus at this point, and they're probably thinking to themselves, okay, we're going to witness. Where are we going to witness? And he says, Jerusalem. And I can almost hear in their heads, they just crucified you, and you want me to go back to Jerusalem? It's crazy, but he doesn't stop. Then it becomes, and Judea, Judea, the countryside, the gauntlet of Pharisees that we ran where they tried to stone us and run you out of every town. You want us to go back to those people. And Samaria. We don't even like those people. You want me to go to those people? This is getting crazy. Oh, and all the world. You get to go to all the world. All the world. We are Jews from Galilee, and you want us to go to places where we don't even know if there's Jews? This is probably the most insane thing they had heard in the last, you know, 20 minutes. Because Jesus was always telling them things that rocked their world. And so all of a sudden, here is your Lord and your Savior that you have seen crucified, dead, and buried, and raised on the third day, has been walking around performing all kinds of miracles, the first of which is the fact that he's actually walking around. And now he's going up in a cloud, and he tells you, it'll be okay, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy What? Just imagine the anxiety and the discombobulation of the first apostles and the way in which they were trying to deal with this. What does this mean? Sometimes we take this for granted because we call on the Holy Spirit all the time. Every time I perform a baptism or I lead at the Lord's table, every time we do prayer, we call on the Holy Spirit, and we do it so much that sometimes we don't stop and think about what we're asking we're asking for God to not only be fully present, but to imbue what we're doing with power, incredible power. 
And for what purpose? To witness to Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no higher purpose for a Christian than to witness and to proclaim the gospel of truth, hope, love, forgiveness, and all encompassed in grace. This is who we are, and this is what we do. And the Holy Spirit is here to help us do it. And we're going to need the Holy Spirit to help us do this. It's getting more difficult. It's getting very hard to stay focused, and there are so many things going on in the world that want to eclipse our proclamation of Jesus Christ. So even as I was reading this sacred text, I was paying attention to some upcoming events in our area. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I preached a semi-passionate sermon about hate. And um, I hope you understand how I feel about hate. In fact, I have spent probably the last 10 years of my life since I've been in ministry trying to purge that word from my vernacular. I have tried to get away from it because I was the generation that hated everything. Oh, I hate it when my hair won't stay straight. Oh, I just hate that. Don't you hate that? I hate that. We should all hate that. And so hate became just this word we threw around. And I tried to stop using it that way, very intentional about how I use that word, so that when I'm talking to someone and I actually say, I really hate it, they go, whoa, she doesn't use that word very often. She must feel very strongly about this. And normally it's reserved for feelings of injustice, when we tell people that they're not loved by God or when you hear people are victimized by others who don't share in our faith in Jesus Christ, those kinds of instances. And yet, not so long ago, there was a group that came here to Charlottesville specifically to preach hate. And so when the Ku Klux Klan came and had received a lawful petition in order to gather together, and they said they came here under the auspices of protesting the removal of a statue of General Robert E. Lee. They came here, and as you may well know, there were plenty of people who said, we don't believe in that hate. We don't believe in what you're espousing, your beliefs that there's white superiority. We don't believe that. It's not welcome here. We would prefer it if you didn't sing that to the highest heavens. And so good-meaning people went out to contradict the message that the Klan were espousing. Good-meaning people. But unfortunately, something happens when you come up against that level of hatred. Unfortunately, if you're not prepared for it, it is overwhelming. There was a time several years ago where I was in a relationship with a man who just happens to be black. And someone who was not in my family or even one of my close friends found out that I had gone on a date with this gentleman and took an occasion when it was dark outside to confront me about this. And I know that sometimes, you know, I'm at loss for words and I can be a shrinking violet and easily intimidated. And so I need you to realize that it's very rare that someone says something to me that I don't immediately have a snarky response for. And this person was standing right in front of me, 
And all of a sudden, from somewhere deep within, unleashed a well of hatred, the likes of which I was not expecting. And it was electrifying. I mean, it, it froze me. I could not move. I could not speak. I became afraid. I was afraid mentally and physically. And even though I was not physically being threatened, I was overcome with terror. And I stood there and I listened to this irrational, irresponsible hatred being spewed at me. And all because I was with someone whose skin was darker than mine for dinner. And I had no rebuttal, no rebuke. I was so afraid and that was only one person's hate. And so when we read in the news that the people who went out to confront the 80 or so Klan members who descended upon Charlottesville, and that because we are human beings and despite our good intentions, some of them responded to the presence of that level of hatred by throwing things and engaging in physical assault. I get it. I understand. You don't know how you're going to react to that if you've never been there. And while I can grant grace for that, while I can understand that they didn't go down there to hate on the haters, something happened, and now that has escalated. It has escalated to the point now that I received an email this week, and this is only but some of those who were distributed, this email. And the email is entitled, Confront Hate in Charlottesville, because the Ku Klux Klan is coming back on August 12th. And inside this email, I struggled as I read, terrorist groups were given permits to rally. And when I think about standing on the front line against terrorists, and I thought we have to be very careful now, because terrorists are people who are using violence to scare you. It's a military term. It's a political term. We actually send our military to wipe out terrorists. And while I certainly don't enjoy or in any way want to continue and perpetuate the Ku Klux Klan, this group that gathered here were not terrorists. They were a hate group. And in the very next paragraph, it says that we have our shared values, those who receive the email, of justice for all people and love of neighbor. And I was having trouble reconciling, calling one group terrorists, but proclaiming that we have love for people. Because have you ever been labeled something that didn't convey love? Have you ever been called something that actually denied you the opportunity to be loved because of the label? And I think as the church, we have to be very, very cautious in that. And so I decided to do some research because apparently what has happened was that once the Ku Klux Klan members were assaulted and multiple people were arrested, the word got out among other hate groups, groups that don't normally stand with and protest alongside the Ku Klux Klan. Groups that, while they might have some feelings about white superiority, they are not actually a white supremacist hate group. Groups like the League of the South, who are actually separationists. They would like to see a Confederate state emerge. 
And while there are certainly pieces of white superiority in that, they don't generally march with the Klan because they believe that the Klan is just pure hatred and they have a desire to be accomplished. So the League of the South has decided that after what happened here in Charlottesville that they need to come in August. And I went on their website and this is what they have said. In response to the alt-right's peaceful demonstration in support of the Lee Monument on May 13th in the city of Charlottesville, roving mobs of Antifa have cracked down on the First Amendment rights of conservatives and right-wing activists. They have threatened our families, harassed our employers, and tried to drive us from public spaces with threats of intimidation. We are not afraid. You will not divide us. And so it says, this is a Unite the Right event, bringing together the alt-right with the alt-left and the Confederates, supporters from around the country. We're demonstrating in support of the Robert E. Lee statue, the right of white people to organize in our interests and to show that we will not be intimidated by harassment campaigns of the left. And so they have decided to come here. And after the 8.30 worship service, I was informed by one of our congregants who because of their job, will be forced to be there on the ground in an authoritative presence, that it's not just this group, that now there are other groups that have been open about their intention to come and be violent. In Charlottesville, on, in August. And so, feeling this helplessness and on the verge of hopelessness, I started to think there has to be something we could do. We tried this. The KKK came, and people went out against them, and it got worse. But the truth is that this is not the model that we see in our history. And over and over again this past week, I had people throwing out the concept of Martin Luther King Jr. That this is what Martin Luther King Jr. did. So... Being a believer in the universal Christian church and the fact that even though the Reverend, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was not a United Methodist, he was still my brother in Christ. And so I will look and see what he did because we know that he was able to affect change, not just institutional change, but changes in the hearts of others. And so I went back and I read for the umpteenth time his letter from the Birmingham jail dated April 16th of 1963, and there while in jail, he wrote this letter that he addressed, my dear fellow clergymen. It's written to people just like me. And in this, he talks about why he was in Birmingham. Why had he left Atlanta and come to Birmingham? He says, because one, we were invited by other Christian activist groups. We were asked to come here. We were asked to bring our skill set and our experience and our presence and our prayers here. And so we have come because injustice anywhere is a strike against us. And so they had come and he outlines that he believes only in nonviolent campaigns. And he says there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist. Negotiation, self-purification, and only then direct action. And so he and his group came, and they worked through a long process before they started their demonstrations. They were not protesters. Nowhere in the eight pages of his letter does he use that word, nor does he use confront, which is an antagonistic way of looking at your presence. 
Instead, he goes on to say that self-purification was a process, a very vital one. We began with a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Verbal blows, and God so help us physical blows, spiritual blows, emotional blows, mental blows. Can you take them and not lash out as every human being would naturally want to do? Can you suffer this for the greater cause? And ultimately, are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? And of course, his answer was yes, as he wrote this letter from a jail cell. And so why is it important? Because he advocated nonviolent direct action, saying, I have earnestly opposed violent tension, specifically citing that group that would become the Nation of Islam. And he reminds us about Reinhold Niebuhr, another Christian theologian, and various groups within Christianity feel either way about Niebuhr, but Niebuhr said that groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. It's important to remember. But the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. went to Birmingham not to protest people. He went because there was an institutionalized sin, an injustice going on there. That almost 10 years after the Supreme Court had overturned segregation, Birmingham refused to stop segregation. They, They would not listen to negotiation. They would not apply the law equally. They had refused time and time again to actually follow through on promises and commitments And only after that did the Reverend Doctor and his cohorts start this process of prayer and purification so that they would be ready for whatever the hate threw at them. Because before the end of the day, they would receive hate the likes of which Jesus Christ can testify to from the cross. And the cost is high when you are confronted with that. So he went on to say that because segregation is unjust, we are here. And then he said something that stopped me in my tracks. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate. Me? I am the problem. How can I be the problem? I would consider myself a white moderate. I wouldn't actually consider myself white, but let's be honest. I don't tend to go around identifying myself by my skin tone. But I definitely would call myself a moderate. And I am the problem. I am a bigger problem than the Ku Klux Klan. How can that be? I'm going to show you a picture. This is a picture that a a journalistic photographer took of the counter-protesters arriving where the Ku Klux Klan was. And there are many things about which I mourn in this picture. First of all, does that look like the embodiment of Jesus Christ coming at you? If that group was coming at you, do their faces, their body language, the way they present themselves, does that make you feel safe and secure and loved? And right at the front... The ultimate symbol of my priestly power and authority in worship on full display. And I thought to myself, dear God, what have we done? 
There's a reason why I don't wear my stole to committee meetings or out to get coffee at Mud House. There's a reason why this resides right here, because the power and the authority that is vested in me and those clergy that you see there, this symbol is used in worship of God. It sanctifies our words, whether we're presiding at the sacraments or we're preaching from the pulpit. It means that what we say and do is directly relatable not only to the church, but to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, good God, what would happen if one of those Ku Klux Klan suddenly had a transformative encounter with Jesus Christ and decided to actually go to church on Sunday morning and was greeted by once more this. And the last time they saw it was then. We cannot co-opt the symbols of the church. But absolutely, we should be saying something about this. We should be saying something about hatred that discombobulates and disorients and angers this many people. But the more I stared at that picture, the more I realized that there's some crucial people missing from this picture. The very same people the Klan is disparaging are not here. Have we, the white moderates, co-opted their voice? Have we taken away from them the right to decide? And I'll tell you, it gets even worse when this email that I received first from the group that was asking us to confront hate then was forwarded to me by my district superintendent. And then I received a letter from the bishop asking all clergy to show up here on August 12th. I am your temporary shepherd. I am the one that the good shepherd has asked to lead you for a time. And I can't help but fear that if I were to simply send you to part two of this, that I would be sending you out to the wolves for slaughter. I am afraid of what will happen there. I am afraid that the witness to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior will be lost in all kinds of different slurs and behavior and violence and suffering if I were to send you here. And I thought to myself, there has to be a different way. Jesus has got to give me something. And he did. Just a few chapters before what I read to you in Acts, out of the gospel account of Luke, chapter 19, Jesus shows us another way. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich, was trying to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. And then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, for he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. And this is a story that we tell our children in Sunday school. We think it's a children's story. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. 
They climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. We miss how crucial this encounter is. Zacchaeus may have been short in stature, but he was powerful. He was a chief tax collector. He had sold his people into fiscal slavery. The Roman Empire comes in and says, if someone who is rich would like to prepay the taxes for this area, I will sell that to you, and then you can collect the taxes and your fee. Open reign for usurious rates. And Zacchaeus was the head of a brigade who collected on his behalf. And if he saw that you looked like you were doing well, then he would exact as much tax as he wanted from you, and you had no recourse. None. He had sold his people to the enemy. And he was getting rich off of their suffering and their servitude. And they hated him for it. And so when he heard that Jesus was coming, this is the man that everybody claims could be our Savior. This could be the Messiah. He had to see for himself. And in his day, grown men didn't climb trees. When you wear a robe, that's usually not advisable. And so he climbed up in the tree because he so desperately wanted to see what was going on. And the crowds were so thick. Everybody wanted to see Jesus. Everybody wanted to see. And so up in the tree, Jesus looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to bless you and your house today. I'm coming to see you. And the crowds go, how can he go see him? Does he not know who that guy is? He's one of the worst. He hates his own people. And Zacchaeus, all because of an act of hospitality, Jesus being willing to grace him with his presence and his gifts, says to him, Lord, that proclamation of transformation, Lord, I am rich and I will give back half of what I have and with the rest I will make reparations. I will be reconciled to my brothers and my sisters whom I have sinned against. I will fix this to the best of my ability because I believe. And Jesus says, yes, you too are a son of Abraham. You are lost and I have come for you. And when Jesus forgives him, I only wish I knew the long-term ramifications that had for Zacchaeus and those who knew him. I only wish I knew. And so people say to me, okay, smarty pants, what would you do? Well, knowing that this new rally in August will be actually across the street from a United Methodist Church, if that were to happen here in Crozet or that were my church, I would host a meal for the clan. When this whole thing is over, I want you to come here and we are going to serve you. And we are going to feed you, and we are going to be present with you, and we are going to reinforce for ourselves that you are human beings, and we are going to show you what love looks like. And after a day of hatred, come and taste the living waters of Jesus Christ. Because I know I have been there that a meal can change your life with Jesus Christ. I know because I preside at the table a meal that transforms us. I know that hospitality can make you see someone for the first time, not only as a human being, but as your brother or sister in Christ. And that's what we need. I don't need to publicly humiliate the Ku Klux Klan. I don't need to make them feel bad. I need their hearts to be changed by Jesus Christ. 
I need them to realize that they are wrong so that they can repent of their sin and join the fellowship of all those who realize that they too were imperfect and yet God still loves us. That's what I need. But I can't just make that decision. Before I did, if this were to happen here at Crozet, there are people in my congregation, the very same people that the Klan stand out against, that I would have to talk with. And we would need to pray together, and we would need to consider if this is what they want and they feel called to. The very same people who are missing in this picture. I cannot co-opt their struggle. I cannot hijack the attack on them in order to act for myself. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it. We were invited here. We were asked. Have we asked those who were the targets of the Klan's hate? Or have we co-opted? We need to be prayerfully discerning that. What would they have us do and say? Because I didn't just baptize three children into a church that thinks that some of us get to make all the decisions. I didn't just baptize them into a life where they just have to go along. I baptized them into the ministry of all believers, where every single one of us has a voice and experience and a gift and something to say and a way to serve, because we are all called to be ministers of the word in that way. And so I worry. I worry what's going to happen next time. I worry how bad this is going to get. And the truth is, I could sit here and come up with all kinds of great ideas about what we're going to do on that day. We're going to have a prayer vigil. We'll have a worship service. We're going to have a training event. But the truth is, I'm not going to do any of those things. Because on August 19th, I will be up in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. And I will be officiating a wedding. And while there is hatred being spewed forth by now multiple hate groups, I will be using my text the text from the wedding at Cana where Jesus performed his first earthly miracle. And I will be reiterating to all those who have gathered to celebrate this day that the love that Jesus Christ has for the church is embedded and mirrored in the words and the liturgy of holy matrimony. And so I will be there, but you will be here. And what will you do? What will you do I understand the desire to go and to be there and to be present. But if we are making things worse, are we witnessing to Jesus Christ? I think there has to be a better way. And I think that as people of Jesus Christ, we have to figure it out and find it. And we have to do it. When Martin Luther King came to Birmingham and he came to witness and to tell the people. Back in the ends of his letter, he actually congratulates and commends some of those who have done things that he finds, as he says, significant stands. I commend you, Reverend Stallings, for your Christian stand on this past Sunday and welcoming Negroes into your worship service on a non-segregated basis. I commend the Catholic leaders of the state for integrating Spring Hill College seven years ago. I commend those who have done lasting good works. I commend them. And we do this at a high cost, and nobody knows that more 
than the family of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so while I have no answer, I have no clear way of telling us what our action should be, I do know this, that we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are here because we have been changed, and God says, now change this world. I know that for a fact, and I know that Jesus is coming back, and I have read this book cover to cover at least 12 times, and this is probably cheating, and it's a spoiler alert, but we win. We win. The Lord of love is going to win. And no hate, no powers, no principalities, nothing is going to stand when he returns. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so how do we get there from here? Because this isn't the only time that hate is going to be in our way. This is not the only time that we are going to have to endure watching the presence of things that are antithetical to Jesus Christ's grace and love and forgiveness. This is not the only time the world is going to cry out, the church must do something. And yes, the church must, but what do we do? We must pray and discern. And I understand our bishop, who is from Atlanta, has a completely different background of this. This is not normative in Virginia. We must stop and be still for a moment and ask, what is God calling us to do? What is God calling you as individual Christians to do? But whatever the answer is, God is present with us in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and for us. Let us use that incredible power and authority to comfort those who mourn to welcome the stranger, and to be the best possible witnesses for Jesus Christ that we can. May it be so in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.